Well, let's get to it. Uh, would you turn with me to the book of Jeremiah? We're, we're gonna finish, Lord willing, this Wednesday night, finishing the second longest book in the Bible. Some say it's Isaiah. But if you count the chapters, Isaiah wins. If you count the words, Jeremiah wins as the second longest book after Psalms. And Jeremiah is a brutal book because we've been going through it. It's, it's kind of about, you know, death and disease and lockdowns. Isn't it a coincidence? Where we're at in the Bible is where we are at in life. And Jeremiah has been the perfect book to parallel all the things we've been going through with the elections and, and all the crazy stuff. You know, I find Jeremiah the book to be extremely relatable. And while some people see only doom and gloom and judgment and wrath in the book of Jeremiah, kind of like 2020, uh, what we found is there's little snapshots of hope and little glimmers of light in the book of Jeremiah. And I love it for that, because uh, the reality is judgment and wrath is real. Righteousness and truth is real, but God's grace and his mercy is also real. And uh, thank the Lord for that. And today, I wanna show you the, how does Jen, Jeremiah wrap up the book? You know, you got this book of 52 chapters, some of them very long chapters, that's kind of this heavy, burdensome, Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet. And you kind of think, oh man, so how is he gonna end this dirge of heaviness? Well, in an unlikely way, in fact, some people argue that Jeremiah didn't even write chapter 52, because it's sort of different than the other chapters, especially if you read it in the Hebrew. Um, it's a little different and it's, and it's sort of like an appendix. Uh, you know, like uh, it's sort of tacked on and we'll talk more about that on Wednesday night about what people think about Jeremiah 52. But, but some people say, man, what a weird thing. And the very last thing that Jeremiah says, it seems kind of unlikely. He's gonna uh, bring up something here in Jeremiah chapter 52. He's gonna bring up King Jehoiachin. Do you guys remember Jehoiachin? Well, if you remember, Jehoiachin was a king for a very short time in Israel. His father was Jehoiakim. Uh, we'll talk about these guys. And, and why would Jeremiah take the seemingly fairly minor uh, king and end the whole thing telling about what happened to Jehoiachin? I think there's something deeper. By the way, whenever you read the Bible and something seems weird, it's usually because there's something deeper that we're missing or something that's kind of cool. I love the Old Testament for that because, you know, if you read the, the Old Testament kind of in a one-dimensional fashion, it's a long, tedious book. But if you read the Old Testament realizing that it's all about Jesus, you know, it says, lo, I come in the volume of the book it is written of me. When Jesus walked on the road to Emmaus with those two dudes after he died on the cross, rose again, and you know, he, he was walking among people, they walked on Emmaus and Jesus told those guys everything concerning himself in the Bible. And the Bible in those days was Genesis to you know, the, um, the end of the Old Testament, Malachi. So what did Jesus tell those guys? That would have been a great teaching to listen to. Jesus talking to the guys on the road to Emmaus about himself and told them everything in the Old Testament that, that's actually him. Well, I think we have one of those scriptures that kind of reminds us of something glorious, but you might miss it because it's about Jehoiachin. Jehoiakim? No, Jehoiachin. Kim Jong-un, Kim Jong-un, Kim Jong-il. Like, which one are we talking about? It's like Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, you know, Chin. Well, Jehoiachin, let's, let's read about this guy. It's Jeremiah 52, and it starts here in verse 31. Jeremiah 52, 31, to the end of the book. It says there, and it came to pass in the seventh and 30th year of the captivity of Jehoiachin, king of Judah. In the 12th month, in the five and 20th day of the month, that evil Merodach, king of Babylon, in the first year of his reign, lifted up the head of Jehoiachin, king of Judah, and brought him forth out of prison and spake kindly unto him and set his throne above the throne of the kings that were with him in Babylon and changed his prison garments and he did continually eat bread before him all the days of his life. And for his diet, there was a continual diet given him of the king of Babylon. Every day a portion until the day of his death, all the days of his life. Wow, what a weird ending of the book of Jeremiah. Who cares about Jehoiachin? He was a nothing. 
What do you mean he was a nothing? Well, if you recall in our Bible study, the things you might remember, remember the guy that had three names, Jehoiachin, Jehoi uh, was one, one of his first name, Coniah was another name that he had, also Jeconiah. So if you're hearing Jeconiah, Coniah, or Jehoiachin, same dude, that's confusing enough. But the funniest thing, the guy with three names, we don't really know much about him other than he had a very, very short reign. His father reigned quite a bit longer. Jehoiakim reigned for a long time. Jehoiakim was the guy, by the way, the father of Jehoiachin. He was the guy, remember when Jeremiah and Baruch brought the scroll of the word of God to the king and the king, Jehoiakim at that time, took the scroll, which is the Bible, and sliced it up with a knife and threw it in the fire. That's what Jehoiakim did. He was an evil, wicked king. Well, as it turns out, the apple didn't fall that far from the tree because his son Jehoiachin was just as bad, maybe even worse. But interestingly, Jehoiachin, let me read to you what happened to Jehoiachin because it's not a long story. It's very short. We don't know much about him other than this. Listen, this comes from 2 Kings chapter 24. Um, it says this in verse eight. It says, Jehoiachin was 18 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned in Jerusalem three months. And his mother's name was Nehushta, the daughter of Elnathan of Jerusalem. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father had done. Followed in his father's evil footsteps. And how long did he reign? He reigned for three months. Technically three months and 10 days if you Read the narrative. Some of you might take issue. You say, but I remember reading in Chronicles that he reigned for several years. Which one is it? Contradiction in the Bible. No. I'll explain that to you on Wednesday night. It's a little bit of an explanation. It's not that hard, but it takes a, a while. We'll talk about that on our Wednesday night study. But Jehoiachin reigned for three months. And then what happened? Well, as it turns out, Jehoiachin was living during that period after the first takeover of the Babylonians. Do you remember the dates that I gave you a few months ago when we were talking about the Babylonians and how they in three waves took over Jerusalem? The first wave, well, it was 607 BC. And the Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians, they came marching into that region, but not any blood was drawn. Basically the Babylonians says, we're gonna crush you unless, unless you become servants of ours and pay taxes and you're a vassal state of Babylon. And the Jews, knowing that they couldn't fight Babylon, they thought, okay, we're, we're faithful Babylonians from here on out. But they hated it. And they paid taxes from right around 607 all the way to 597 BC. So for quite a few years, you know, seven or eight years, they, they, they paid their taxes. But then a new king came in the land, his name, Jehoiachin. An 18 year old who said, I'm sick of these dumb Babylonians. We're not gonna pay taxes to these guys. That's what Jehoiachin does. He says, we're not, we're not gonna abide by this stupid Babylonian rule. 10 seconds later, Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians up, end up on the doors of Jerusalem. Uh, and Jehoiachin, they're all freaking out. Oh no, the Babylonians are gonna crush us now. And so what happens? Jehoiachin and his mother, uh, Nehushta, and uh, 10,000 soldiers came walking out of Jerusalem and surrendered to the Babylonians. They chained all of them up, Jehoiachin, the 10,000 soldiers, the mother, and they marched them off into captivity into Babylon. No, you know, and they killed a bunch of people too, the Babylonians. The second wave, they're in 597, Jehoiachin the king, 18 year old punk kid, dragged off into Babylon. He, he ruled for three months and failed. So now what happens? Well, they drag him off to Babylon, Jehoiachin. Most of the young men that they took to Babylon, the Babylonians had sort of a strange system and it was like this. Instead of killing them or even throwing them in prison or whatever, they would try to assimilate them into Babylonian culture. They would give them homes. They would give them jobs and say, as long as you just become good Babylonians here, you're good to go. But if you twitch wrong, we'll kill you. You choose. So most of the young men uh, just said, okay, uh, you know, oh, Babylon, or whatever their song was. They, you know, they, they, they became Babylonians. Most people got assimilated. Now, remember Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, those guys, that was the same objective they had to try to assimilate those guys, but they didn't assimilate uh, because they were being good Jewish kids. Remember that story? But God blessed them. 
What about Jehoiachin? Well, his story is different. Because he was the king of Judah, they didn't let him go free and try to assimilate into Babylonian culture. They threw him in a dark, deep dungeon and threw away the key. This 18-year-old kid, Jehoiachin, he's sitting there and he rots in prison for 37 years. And for those of you guys that were homeschooled, Babylon prisons didn't have uh, ping pong tables and weight rooms and cable TV. I say that at the homeschool because I like making homeschool jokes. I love you guys. But in history, man, that's, that's the, the dungeons of Babylon. That was not a place you wanted to be. Now, what happens? Well, he's forgotten. Nobody cares about him. When suddenly the Bible gives us this little snapshot for no reason. Why is Jeremiah ending with Jehoiachin and what happens to him? Well, I believe this little picture here is to help us understand something about God and his love for us. Because there's a couple things we need to establish that you know Jehoiachin was, in recorded history, nothing good did Jehoiachin ever do. There's no recorded thing about Jehoiachin doing something nice or kind or good. Everything he did was a failure and was sinful. He sinned just like his father and he was like this loser. And so, so many people say, well, yeah, whatever. We don't care what happened to Jehoiachin. Why does Jeremiah finish the book on this note of Jehoiachin and this guy named Evil Merodach pulling him up out of prison and feeding him some food? What, what's going on here? Well, what we find out is Evil Merodach. First of all, let's, let's see who that, this dude is. Evil Merodach. Now, he's not an evil guy. He sounds like some Avengers character, you know, some, some uh, evil Merodach. He's one of the villains or whatever. No, Evil Merodach, that was a title of a king of Babylon. Evil Merodach was the son of Nebuchadnezzar II, which is Nebi that we know in the Bible. Um, and he's the, he's the king that rules after Nebuchadnezzar for a short period. And he, he doesn't get much press in history. Mostly you read about Nabonidus or Belshazzar, um, you know, but you don't read about Evil Merodach. The Bible records just this. And then extra biblical history tells us very little about Evil Merodach, other than the one thing that's said about him that you know, they found in archeological digs that he was not a good leader. <laughs> that's, what, that's what history says about Evil Merodach. But why does the Bible tell us about this? Well. Evil Merodach, for whatever reason, when Nebuchadnezzar dies, evil Merodach becomes the king. And one of the first things he does is pulls old Jehoiachin, who's now in his late 50s, been sitting in prison, and he pulls him up out of prison. Why? Why did evil Merodach pull Jehoiachin out 37 years after being in prison? The answer? We don't have the foggiest idea. We have some speculation. You can only speculate. Uh, one guess is this. If you read your history about Babylon and some of these ancient kingdoms, it wouldn't be unusual for kings to be thrown in prison before they went to the throne. If you read your history, you know how this rolls. Uh, people are threatened by a young prince who's the up and comer and he does something wrong. So they throw him into prison to keep him at bay until he's ready to reign. They'll pull him out. Like there's amazing stories about this. And as it turns out, Evil Merodach, there's a possibility that he did some time before he became the king. That's actually historically uh, talked about, that it's possible that that happened. If that's the case, some speculate that maybe Evil Merodach was in prison with Jehoiachin and they became buds in there. So that when Evil Merodach gets out of prison and becomes the king, then he says, I'm bringing my bro out of prison, Jehoiachin, and I'm gonna let him live in my house and I'm gonna feed him for, till he dies. Um, that's a possibility. Others say, no, it's probably Daniel because Daniel the prophet was on the scene at this time. And could it be that Daniel, who was a godly man, went to King Evil Merodach and said, hey, there's a poor guy that's been in your prison for 37 years, time to let him go. And maybe Daniel you know, intervened on behalf of Jehoiachin and that's why he was set free, don't know for sure. But all we can do is speculate, but it leaves a question mark that I think is interesting because it makes for a nice picture for you and for me. So, you know, you say, what do you mean a picture? Remember, the Old Testament is a bunch of illustrations and pictures of New Testament truths. So, what do we learn from this? Well, the first thing we learn is Jehoiachin never did anything good, and as it turns out, you and I never did anything good. Brett, speak for yourself. No, this is where you and I, this is probably one of the biggest challenges I have in modern times as a pastor 
is to convince us all that we're wretched, miserable sinners. For some reason that's harder today, and I'll tell you why, because we live in this mamby-pamby culture that says, you're a good person. And everything about you is, you're just really good, and there's nothing really evil, and it's all relative, and it's bad to me, it's not necessarily bad to you. So good for you, there's nothing really wrong, and, and I'm a good person, and people like me. Well, that, that's all lies, especially the part about people liking you. <laughs> we believe the lies, I'm a good person. No, you're not. The Bible teaches us so soundly that you and I are wretched, miserable sinners. That's why Paul the Apostle is such a key part of the New Testament. Because did you know there was a group of people that were considered the best people on the planet at that time? Like the most holy, righteous, like they did crazy, righteous, holy stuff. Their names, the Pharisees. Paul was a Pharisee among Pharisees. He was schooled by a guy named Gamaliel that was like the Pharisee of Pharisee of all Pharisees. So these Pharisees were so wacko in trying to be holy, they did stuff like this, this is true. They would pour out their pepper on their table, all of it. And they'd pick out one little grain of pepper and say, one for God, nine for me. Why? Because they wanted to give one-tenth of all that they had to the Lord. And so holy were they, they were picking their pepper one-tenth out to the grain. The Pharisees did that kind of stuff. There was a group of Pharisees, I could tell you all kinds of stories about Pharisees, there's all kinds of history. They had actually sects of Pharisees. One group was literally called uh, the bump and stumble Pharisees. Um, now, why were they called that? It's because they were so worried about looking upon a woman with lust in their heart that they would wear these robes and they would have these kind of hoods over their heads. And when they walked around town, they would fold their hands and only look down at their feet as they walked around. And so they'd always bump into people and bump into walls. That's why they were called the bump and stumble Pharisees because they weren't looking where they were going lest they look at a woman with lust in their heart. That's how these guys rolled. Some of you guys probably should do that. <laughs> but, um, but anyway, these Pharisees, they, they were wacko. They thought they were holy and Paul was one of them and he was one of the best of them. And then he got knocked off his high horse, if you remember. And the Lord saved him and said, why do you persecute me? Jesus said to Paul, the apostle, whose name was Saul at the time, and changed his name to Paul, and he became a Christian. And then Paul realized as a Pharisee, he said to everybody as a young, new Christian, he said, oh man, we're all sinners. But then in the middle part of his life, he said, oh, I, Paul the apostle, am a sinner. And then as an old man in the book of, you know, 1 Timothy, he said, I, Paul the apostle, am the chiefest of sinners. What was wrong with Paul? Was he getting worse as the years went by? Was he suddenly becoming very, very evil as time went by? No, he was becoming enlightened. His own personal sin and failure was so obvious to him. He thought, oh, I thought I was so good when I was a Pharisee. But as an old man, he realized, and this is true for you and me. If you're a young person in this room, you're more prone to thinking, you know, I'm basically a pretty good person. The old people in here, we all go, no. We've lived some life and you're gonna fail and it's gonna be embarrassing how bad you are. You don't even know how evil your wicked heart is. Wait till you're 50. Then you'll think there's no hope. Except for this, you know, I love it that Paul's just saying, oh, remember Paul said, oh, wretched man that I am. That's what Paul said. He was like just breathing in pain saying, oh, I'm such a wretch. And this is Paul who would make you and I look like Adolf Hitler. Like Paul was Mr. on the ball and righteous, but he said, I'm a wretched man, but I thank the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because Jesus was the one who saved Paul out of that wretchedness. And that's when Paul said, oh, praise the Lord, we're saved by grace through faith, not of our works. If it was our works, we'd all be toast. Because our, our good works, the Bible tells us that even your best works are like filthy rags. Remember what I was talking about a few weeks ago about sin? People just don't get this, but it's so important that uh, sin is a very vast topic. Some of you think that sin is murder and adultery and stealing from a bank, and that's sin. But, oh, do you understand that sin is much more broad? It's giant. Sin includes pretty much everything you do. I don't know how to say it more clearly. Um, the, the Greek word for sin is the same Greek word they would use to talk about missing a bullseye. If you're shooting an arrow into a target, anything that's not sin is white or black, but the red dot that's the size of a quarter, that's not sin. That's what the Bible says. So when you sin and you just miss the mark, 
See, we're a culture that calls it A or B. Well, that's a good person, but that, that person's Adolf Hitler. Have you noticed how everybody's calling each other Adolf Hitler nowadays? If you don't like what somebody, he's pretty much Hitler. It makes me realize nobody knows their history. I, I've never met anybody as bad as Hitler. Like Hitler killed 6 million Jews in gas chambers for no reason other than just total hatred. Like it doesn't get much, even, but people call it, they throw the name Hitler around like it's, uh, you're pretty much Hitler. It's because we, we say you're kind of A or B, but the Bible says we're all B. We're all sinners, we all have fallen short. There's no one righteous, not even one person the Bible says. No one that even really seeks after God. You say, well, I'm seeking God. No, you're not. If you wanna believe your Bible, we don't purely seek the Lord, like we should. We have other motivations. We lose attention span. We say we're seeking God, but we kind of half-hearted. Like, like the Lord sees everything and it's all sin. Now that's the bad news. There is some good news coming. So, so this guy, Jehoiachin, is a classic example of us. A guy who never did anything good didn't deserve any help at all, didn't deserve one good thing. That's Jehoiachin. And yet the Lord ends the story of Jeremiah saying, well, this loser, Jehoiachin, who never did anything good, guess what? Six things happened to him. What happened to old Jehoiachin? There are six things that I'd like to have you jot down in your notes and think through with me because I think the Jehoiachin story parallels what our king has done for us. The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, Jesus has done something to people like us, Jehoiachins, who never deserve any good thing. The first thing that, that uh, King Evil Merodach did to Jehoiachin was he lifted up his head. Now in the Bible, you have to be careful with this phrase. Remember the butler and the baker? There was no candlestick maker in this story. Um, but the butler and the baker, they're in the dreams of Joseph. These two guys have dreams and they both have these dreams that Joseph interprets and the butler gets a dream and says, your head will be lifted up back into power under Pharaoh. And he looked at the butler and said, your dream is different, but your head's gonna be lifted up literally off your shoulders. There's not much of a future in that, by the way. That's called beheading. One guy's gonna be beheaded, his head would be lifted off, the other guy's head would be lifted up. So this phrase, his head was lifted, gotta be careful with that in the Bible. But in these cases, it's a really good term. Um, the lifter of a person's head means two things. One, their head is down because they're bummed out. Have you ever seen a little kid when he pouts, puts his little lower lip out and your head is down. And a loving mother comes up and what does she do? She gently takes him by the chin and is the lifter of his head. Why? Because she wants him to be encouraged. That's this phrase being the lifter of one's head um, and, and also in the Bible, this lifting of the head is an encouraging term, but it also could be restoring someone back to a place of prominence or power or ruler. Um, and that's, I think both of these are the case with Jehoiachin. For whatever reason, this king, evil Merodach says, I wanna be the lifter of your head. It reminds me of the Psalm, Psalm 3.3. 3. Um, a Psalm of David that says, but thou, O Lord, art a shield for me, my glory and the lifter up of my head. Um, the Lord is the one who calls himself, that's one of the Lord's names, the lifter of my head. I love that about the Lord. And by the way, David is the one who wrote this. In fact, when you read Psalm chapter three, there's a superscription underneath the title of Psalm three that says a Psalm of David, when Absalom took over Jerusalem and David fled. Do you guys remember that story? When did David said, Lord, you're the lifter of my head? He said it with it when his head was down. If you read, you know, 2 Samuel chapter 15, what happened? Absalom, picture Fabio. Mr. Muscles and big flowing hair and just kind of this good looking guy. And he, he sits outside of the palace of his dad. And while the uh, people of Israel come, we gotta talk to King David, we gotta talk to King David. Absalom says, my dad doesn't have time for you. He doesn't really care about you, but I alone care about you. I love you, my people. And, and they came to Absalom and he would solve their problems and woo them to himself. And then he would say, I can't believe it's not Bata. No, I'm just, I just made that part up. I just made that part up. So he wooed the people and then he caused there to be a military coup and really took over Jerusalem. And what do we see, David? Now this is so sorry because David is a mighty man, killed giants in battle. David had killed 10,000s of Philistines with his bare hands. Like David was this war hero 
And what does he do? Well, it's because it's his son. He doesn't want to fight his son. So he puts on sackcloth and ashes, his barefoot, throws dirt and ashes on his head, and he walks out of uh, Jerusalem with his head down in total shame. And this little dude, remember Shimei, throwing dirt clods at him the whole way. Like how pathetic does it get? The king of Jerusalem walking out with his head down. And he went down the Kidron Valley up onto the Mount of Olives. And when he got up there, we know exactly what he was praying and thinking because Psalm 3.3 records it. He says, but thou, O Lord, art a shield for me. You're my glory and the lifter up of mine head. His head was down, but David knew that that's the way God rolls. He takes the downtrodden and he lifts up their heads. And can I say this, you guys? Some of you have maybe had a tough season this past year with your business or with your family members, or some of you are hurting because of people getting sick and disease. And some of you are hurting because of the way you lived your life. Maybe some of you at 18 were as knucklehead as Jehoiachin and you kind of ruined your life at 18. Just like Jehoiachin, guess what? Good news, the Lord is the one who is the lifter of your head. He can take you and pull your little chin back up and say, chin up, I got this. Um, I love that about the story of Jehoiachin. He was just there in prison. Josephus, the ancient historian, writes about this. He was 2,000 years ago, this historian from the first century, but he wrote about Jehoiachin and he gives us some crazy detail about Jehoiachin's imprisonment. He actually lists all the foods the Babylonians fed him regularly, like his diet. You nutrition people would go nuts with that. Wow, he had kale, amazing, uh, you know, whatever. Uh, but they, Josephus lists all of his food. And then, and then Josephus wrote this. This is where it gets really interesting that they only let Jehoiachin see the light of day once for about a half hour every day for 37 years. They had opened a little window and he could see daylight and then close it and in total darkness. Like this is a bad scene Jehoiachin lived for 37 years but the, the, the king lifted up his head and that's what the Lord does. I wanna tell you guys, don't go to the, the world for your lifting of your head. People try to go to other friends or other people or other sources to try to have their head lifted from their despair, but it never works. It's usually short-lived at best. But Jehoiachin gets his head lifted permanently and he lives the rest of his life blessed. One of my favorite preachers of the 1800s, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, people say that I look like him. I brought a picture this time so you could see. <laughs> anyway, what did Chuck have to say about this? Uh, well, he was so good at putting words down uh, in sermons, but he said about this, he said, some of you have tried to find refuge outside of God. You have sought to find it in your wealth but you have pricked your head when you have laid it on that pillow. You have sought it with a friend, but that friend's arm has been a broken reed where you were hoping that it would be a wall of strength. You will never find rest except in God. There is no refuge but in him. So true. But thou, O Lord, art a shield for me, my glory and the lifter up of my head. Man, that's point number one. We see Jehoiachin's head lifted up. Number two. He was freed from prison. Our text tells us here in Jeremiah 52, it says, so uh, evil Merodach, king of Babylon, lifted up the head of Jehoiachin, king of Judah, and then brought him forth out of prison. That's the second thing he did, is brought him out of prison. Do you know that's what the Lord did for you and me? Brad, I've never been in prison. Don't call me a prisoner. Oh, yes, you have. You're like the Jews that say, I've never been, we've never been in bondage. Jesus had this discussion and it's kind of comical if you think about it for more than 10 seconds. In John chapter eight, uh, verse 31, then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, if you continue in my word, then you are my disciples indeed and you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. Now listen to the Jews, they answered and said, we be Abraham's seed, and we were never in bondage to any man. How sayest you that you shall be made free? <laughs> Question before we read on. Were the Jews never in bondage? They forgot something. 450 years being slaves in Egypt, hello. These Jews just totally forgot that part. 400 years of slavery, we were never in bondage to any man. Yes, you were, 
But as it turns out, they were wrong on all accounts because then Jesus says, I'm not really even talking about that kind of bondage. Jesus answered them and said, verily, verily, I say unto you, whosoever committeth sin is the, and the word there is servant, but a lot of your newer translations say slave because that's the word literally translated. He says, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin and the servant or slave abides not in the house forever. In other words, you're not gonna be in the house forever, but the son abideth forever. If the son therefore shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. Jesus was saying, listen, you guys, it's not this bondage like Egypt that I'm talking about. It's when you sin, sin leads to bondage. You're imprisoned in your own sinfulness. Boy, how many have really found that to be true? You start to engage in sin and pretty soon the shackles are on and you drag those chains around. And sin is addictive, powerfully addictive. And I'm not just talking about alcohol, I'm talking about all sin. Uh, you know, you, you start getting good at sin and pretty soon you don't even feel convicted of your sin and you start saying, I'm a good person. And it all seems like everything's great, but you're miserable and you're in bondage. When I was in high school, I remember um, my buddies always thought I was the goody two shoes of the group. Oh, holy Brett, you know, gonna be a pastor probably someday. <laughs> Um, because I wasn't partying with them. I was getting drunk after the football games. I wasn't sleeping around the school and all that stuff. And, and they all were. And so, you know, they're all, you know, thinking, oh, Brett, you just can't have any fun. But they looked at it like I was the one in bondage or, you know, locked down or whatever. But as it turns out, I, I could see a very different picture. They were the ones in bondage because of their sin. They were the ones that were becoming addicted even under my very eyes watching them as high school kids. Some of my best friends became raging alcoholics and their lives have been ruined by alcohol since the old high school days. Who's really in bondage? You see, I'm of the uh, belief that Christians are the freest people I know. We're free to not get tangled up in sin. We're free to, you know, when you're not engaging in sin, man, your options are huge. You got all kinds of options. When you start sinning it up, your options start getting very narrow, even to the point of confines of prison. What do you mean, Brett? Well, let me give you one example. Let's say God has a, a girl set aside for a young guy and the Lord says, these two are gonna be married someday. And it's like the perfect couple, two Christians living their lives for the Lord, wanting to keep themselves, I know this sounds antiquated and prehistoric, but it's biblical, to abstain from sex before you're married. So these young couple, they're doing that and man, they're just perfect for each other. But then the young boy gets lured into a sexual relationship and he stumbles and falls and he sleeps with a girl before he's married. That's called sin. Sex outside of marriage is sin. Well, whatever, Lord, the Lord will forgive him and we can move on. Oh, but see, the problem is it's not always that simple with sin. The Lord does forgive us and can forgive that guy. But let's just say that he contracts, you know, HPV virus, which guys never really know if they have it that much. Um, mostly girls find that one out. Real fun, sexually transmitted disease that nobody wants to talk about. But that kid, then he kind of says, Lord, forgive me. And now he wants to marry the girl that kept herself for her husband. And he can't really say that anymore. His options start to narrow down. Um, that perfect girl that God set aside, well, it might not even work out at some point because you took a different path of sin and that starts to narrow your options. And then you have to, if you do marry that girl, you're gonna have to have that conversation. Oh, well, you know, I did sleep with one other per person and I hope, hope she didn't have an STD or whatever. Uh, but I've sat in premarital counseling where a guy had to explain that he had the HPV virus and that she was probably gonna be at risk for cancer uh, because of his, you know, sleeping around. Nobody tells you this, except for your pastor. Why am I doing sex ed here at Athey Creek? <laughs> Nobody will tell you this, it's true. But see, my point is, once you start engaging in sin and we think, oh, we're freedom in Christ, we can do whatever we want, you know, all things are lawful for me. But meanwhile, we forget that sin messes you up and it narrows your options. And eventually you become enslaved and in bondage. The first shackles go on when you make those choices. I believe that people don't really even get the freedom that we have to not do stuff. We're free 
to keep ourselves for the Lord. You know, it's really sad when you think about the way this thing happened, but um, you know, I love it that the Lord says, you know what, I'm gonna, I'm gonna free you from that prison of sin. And Jesus said, I'm all about that. You know, it's interesting because um, it's not just here in John chapter eight, but this freedom that the Lord wants us to have is Romans chapter eight. What kind of freedom do we get? Freedom from the law of sin and death. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. Once you and I sinned, we're locked on to death and sin. But even as Jehoiachin was, the king said, I'm gonna take you up out of prison. Jesus is all about the, take, taking us and pulling us out of our prison of sin, breaking those chains of sin that the enemy wants to put on you. And if you've lived a life of sin and debauchery, good news, like Jehoiachin who did live a life of sin and debauchery, the king lifted him up and pulled him up out of the prison. And that's what Jesus does for us, I love that. Point number three, the third thing that was happening to Jehoiachin, he was given kind words. Did he deserve kind words? Well, you kind of feel bad for the guy sitting there for 37 years in a dungeon. But evil Merodach, our, our text tells us here that he spoke kind words to him. Isn't that something? Verse 32, and he spake kindly unto him. Uh, what's that have to do with you and me? And why is that even recorded here in the Bible? Well, as it turns out, did you know that Jesus, if he stood right in front of you as a Christian, if you're a Christian here, what would his words sound like? I'm convinced a lot of you don't know. A lot of you are convinced that if Jesus stood in front of you, he'd say, what a disappointment. Lehuser, total wimp spiritually, doesn't read their Bible, doesn't pray, barely shows up at Athey Creek. Who do you think you are? Is that what Jesus would say to you? Well, as it turns out, no. Thank the Lord for that. That's Satan that says that kind of stuff. Satan always is accusing you day and night, the Bible says, if you're a Christian. But what would the word sound like if Jesus spoke to us? Well, I think we have a hint in Luke chapter four, verse 22, the people that heard him speak to people, it says, and all bear him witness and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, is not this the son of Joseph? In other words, we know this guy. He grew up in Nazareth under Joseph, the dad, but he's speaking these miraculously gracious kind-hearted words. Quiz time. Jesus spoke some brutal words. Who was he speaking to with those brutal words? Anybody? It was the religious leaders of the day. Jesus got brutal with the religious leaders. We pastors should probably take note of that. Who did Jesus speak kindly to all the time? It was the deep, brutal sinners. I love that, you know. I'm reminded of the, the woman who was caught in the very act of adultery, the Bible tells us. And what's interesting about that, um, it says they caught her in the very act. So my question is, where's the guy? Where's the dude in the story? Why didn't they drag a man and a woman if they caught him in the very act? The reason, they had a double standard just like our culture and the man got to go free and they dragged this poor woman, probably still naked and they threw her down in the street in front of Jesus. And they did this because they wanted to trap Jesus. And, um, and, and so they said, listen, Jesus, the law of Moses says, if you wanna be biblical, we're supposed to stone this woman. And they all had rocks in their hands. They're ready to let her rip, man. They're excited to kill this woman. Go to the Middle East today. There's places today where they still do this. And so there they are, but they said, but but what do you say? Should we let her go free? And see, here's what they were wanting to do. If he said, yeah, let her go free, then, um, then he would be breaking the law of Moses and he wouldn't be a legitimate rabbi teacher. Delegitimize him, you know. But if he said, yeah, let the stones fly, kill her because she's committed adultery, follow the law of Moses, then he would be not saying gracious words and people that were loving him would say, ooh, we don't really like this guy. So they thought they've got him. Now, when you're trying to trap God, let me just tell you, that's not a good idea. Jesus is way smarter than these dudes, okay? So what does Jesus do? I love this story, this is so great. The Bible says that Jesus looked at him, they asked him the question, and then he just stooped down and started writing in the sand. What was he writing? We don't know. The word in the Greek says he, he wrote, the word writing is katagraphein, which means to write against, that's, that's a hint. We know Jesus was writing something against. What does that mean? 
don't know for sure. But let me give you a scenario of how it could have maybe been. This, I'm not saying this is for sure, but I, I think there's a hint. There's a few hints. To write against, and Jesus said, those of you that are without sin, cast the first stone. And then he continued to write. And then it says, one by one, from the oldest guy, in order of their age, dropped their rocks and went home. There's another hint. So whatever Jesus was writing, they, these guys are like, oh, we're gonna kill her, we got rocks. And one by one, they're like, uh, never mind. <laughs> what was he writing? I have a, here it was. Let's say the oldest dude's their name was Murgerford. <laughs> so Jesus, maybe he looked at Murgerford and said, those of you that are without sin, cast the first stone. And then he wrote, writes in the sand, maybe, Murgerford, Motel 6, <laughs> Bethany, 6 AD. And Murgerford's like, uh, you know, I think I hear my wife calling, drop, he's gone. Second guy, Herkimer, the next oldest guy. Jesus writes down Herkimer, stealing from your wife food when she wasn't looking. Don't tell her, pew, out, he's gone. Next guy, like, and just one by one from oldest year, they, they all leave. And now Jesus is standing there with the adulteress, the sinner. What is he gonna say to her? He just hammered these guys that thought they were so holy. What's he gonna say to the adulteress? Well, we actually have that and I wanna show you. It's right there in John chapter eight. When Jesus had lifted up himself after writing all that stuff in the dirt and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, woman, where are thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, no man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Gracious words. Oh man, we can learn a huge lesson from Jesus. Wouldn't it be great if you and I had more gracious words like that? Now, some of you might be thinking, well, good for the adulteress. Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go your way to sin no more. But what does he say to me? Do you realize that he says the same thing to you? You know, Romans makes this perfectly clear when Paul told us, there is therefore now no, what? Condemnation for who? For those that are in Christ Jesus. If you're a Christian, if you've accepted Jesus and believe the work of the cross that he died and that he rose from the grave, the Lord Jesus looks at you like he looked at this woman who was caught in adultery and says, I don't condemn you. Now go your way and sin no more. Now I don't believe he say, now you better go and never sin again. I'm watching you, keeping a list, checking it twice. No, that's sa Satan, I mean Santa. Just saying, little red suit, you know, change the letters around. <laughs> keeping a list, that's Satan who keeps a list of all our naughty things. What does Jesus do? When you become a believer, he remembers your sins no more. He puts your sins as far as the east is from the west. This woman that was caught in adultery, you know, it's amazing how people superimpose themselves in Bible characters. I like to think of myself as the Apostle Paul. I really see myself in David. The older I get, the more I'm like, I really see myself in the adulterous woman. I can relate to her. Because like Paul, I, the older I get, the more I realize, oh Lord, I'm so thankful that you're the one that's the forgiver of sins and that you Give us kind, gracious words. I love that. The Lord thinks of you gracious thoughts. The thoughts he thinks towards you are thoughts of peace and not of evil. Jeremiah 29 tells us. The psalmist declared the Lord's thoughts are precious toward you. And they're not just, you know, they're not angry thoughts, they're precious thoughts. And how many precious thoughts? As many as there are grains of sand on the beach. So next time you go to the Oregon coast, reach down, grab a handful of sand and start counting. See how far you get before you think, wow, this number is too hard to reach. That's the thoughts that are precious that God has you more than the sand of the sea. So not only was he given kind words and pulled up out of prison and his head was lifted up. Number four, he was given a throne of kings. He went from loser to this like major in charge guy sitting on a throne. How did that happen? Well, that's the way the Lord rolls. And God has a plan to do that with you. If you're a Christian, you can be the most 
um, insignificant person on this world, that doesn't matter. What matters is if you're a believer in Christ, the Lord says, I have a place for you. And I've got a role for you to play in eternity. And it's not gonna be boring. You know, somewhere along the way, you got this image in your mind that when I go to heaven, I'm gonna be sitting on a cloud, strumming a harp, bling. You cat people, that's how we know that there's cats in heaven, because there's harps. Do you know what harp strings are made out of? Yeah, cat gut. Anyway, just a little freebie for you cat lovers. <laughs> I see some of you scowling at me right now. It's like, um, where was I? Oh yeah, you're not sitting on a cloud strumming harps for all eternity. You know, that's not what's gonna happen. As it turns out, you and I are gonna rule and reign under but with Christ, the Bible says. Christ is the ultimate King of kings, Lord of lords. But as Christians, we're gonna give a, be given a role in the universe somehow of being a royal priesthood and ruling and reigning with Christ. I'll just give you a couple quick scriptures on that. But, you know, I love 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, but it says, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. That, that would make sense, peculiar. That you should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into what? His marvelous light. Ah, Jehoiachin was sitting in darkness in a prison and getting just 20 minutes, 30 minutes of light every day. Darkness with his head down. His head was lifted up. He was you know, given a throne and he was called out of darkness into marvelous light. That's what the Lord says about you. You might have a miserable life here and now, but the Lord has a plan. You're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. I love it, you know, because uh, you're part of two, one of two groups. If we suffer, which we will as Christians, we'll go through bad times. The Bible promises that. It says we shall also reign with him. So even if it's bad here and now, we have to look forward to reigning with Christ in eternity. If we deny him, he will also deny us. You won't be ruling and reigning for eternity. Which group are you? You might be suffering like Jehoiachin and not deserving any help like Jehoiachin, doing nothing good like Jehoiachin, but guess what? The king raised his head, gave him a throne, said kind words to him, did all these things. But there's, a, there's another one, number five on our list. He was given new garments. Does that sound familiar? You that are Bible people, you know where I'm going with this one. Because the Bible likens our old sinful life to wearing dirty, filthy rags. Even your best works are called filthy rags. That's what, that's what the Bible says. But Jehoiachin was, you know, you know, he could have been pulled out by evil Merodach and said, you stink, man. You smell, you smell like rat poop. You've been in prison all these long years. That's not what he said. He said, come up out of prison. And he gave him new garments. Like Isaiah chapter 61, verse 10, where it says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He hath covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorneth herself with jewels. You and I are, are gonna be given that robe of righteousness. We already have. If you've accepted Christ, you've been robed in righteousness. Remember the story of the prodigal son? Talk about stink. The guy took the dad's inheritance and then bolted and went to a faraway land where he partied down. There and him and his buddies and spent all of dad's money. And he ran out of money and his friends bolted. That's the way it, it happens, you know, and so... So he, he finds this minimum wage job, a good Jewish boy. What am I gonna do? Slopping pigs, that's his job. He's a pig slopper. And he's so broke and he's so poor that he starts eating the slop that the pigs are eating. Like that's where he ends up, sitting in the mud, eating pig slop. And he's sitting there with his head down, sitting in the pig slop and he thinks, man, my dad's slaves have it better than I do here. And he comes up with this harebrained idea. Maybe if I go tell dad, dad, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. If I could only be a slave and live in your house, I'd be grateful. And so he says, I'm gonna go tell dad that. And so he goes and he's walking. While he's still a long way off the dad, what is he doing? He's watching for the son to return. Don't you love that? And when he's still a great distance off, the father sees him, bolts out the door. It's the only time you see God pictured as being in a hurry in the Bible is that story. God the Father in a hurry to do what? To forgive and to accept the sinful son. So he goes out there, kisses him on the neck, sticks a ring on his finger, kills the fatted calf and puts a robe on his shoulders and robes him 
I don't care how bad you've been, how bad you stink spiritually. You might smell like pig slop from this world, but if you repent of your sins and ask for Christ to save you and forgive you, he died on the cross for your sins so that God the Father comes and, and says, I remember your sins no more and I robe you in righteousness. That's why you and I can greatly rejoice in the Lord like Isaiah 61.10 and we'll be joyful because he's clothed me with the garments of salvation. He hath covered me with a robe of righteousness. Do you see how amazing the story of Jehoiachin actually really is when you see that it's exactly point for point? Oh, but I have one more point, and this is my favorite one. He ate continually <laughs> at the king's table. Do you guys remember the king's table restaurant? Are there still king's table? I don't think they're around. Maybe it turned down to a hometown buffet, something like that. Um, <laughs> Man, remember you'd go and you'd spend your $6 or whatever and you tried to get your money's worth so you eat everything that's there. That's why I call it hometown barfay. My whole offensive line when I was in football, we would after practice go to the hometown barfay and we would just eat uh, uh, and, uh, and you just eat till you're sick, you know, because you want to get your money's worth. Um, when I think of the king's table, that, that's what my mind goes to. But did you know that this is something that actually the Lord is doing for you? Jehoiachin gets this sumptuous food from the king and he's lifted up out of prison and he gets to eat at the king's table to the day he dies. What a privilege to eat the food of a king. But I hope you understand that that's what you and I get as sons and daughters, children of the king of kings and the Lord of lords. There's two levels of this. First of all, let's talk about the heavenly level, the eternal level. The eternal level of this is, is, did you know that there's a marriage feast of the lamb? You and I are called the bride of Christ. We have this relationship. That's why I like the Song of Solomon, which is about two, you know, a husband and a wife and their love for each other. Do you remember in the Song of Solomon, let me remind you what it says in Song of Solomon 2, 4. It says, he, the bridegroom, brought me, the bride, to the banqueting house, the place of food, and his banner over me is love. When it's all said and done and this world is over for you and me, we get to enjoy something called the marriage feast of the lamb. And the Lord has prepared a table that's gonna be amazing. Do you ever wonder what eating food, like for us foodie people, do you ever wonder what that's gonna be like in heaven? I'm convinced that this is the way it'll happen. You'll eat a pint of Ben and Jerry's Cherry Garcia and it'll make you skinny. <laughs> but if you have kale, it goes right to the hips, man. That'd be great, that's heaven right there. <laughs> um, but I do think that, that more than actual food, I think that the Lord is saying, you're gonna be fed for all eternity at the king's table. That's what we get to enjoy. And there's a lot of scriptures about that. But you say, but that's great for when we die and go to heaven or the rapture of the church happens, great. But what about now? Well, did you know that we get something that's amazing, the bread of life? Your soul is hungry and you try to feed it with stuff of this world, but man, <clears throat> the Lord wants you to eat at his table. And he, Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. If you eat this bread, you'll never be hungry again. I am the water of life. And if you drink of the water of life, you'll never be thirsty again. I will satisfy your hungry and thirsty soul. That's what Jesus declared. And what's interesting to me is our human nature, we still try to go to other places for food and satisfaction. It's like the children of Israel, they had manna. What a provision, which is a picture of Jesus, the daily bread. They were out in the middle of nowhere and they'd wake up in the morning. They didn't have to go and put on their mask and go to Safeway and stand six feet apart and look at everybody weird as they're walking around shopping. They just reached out their tent and grabbed food. And, yeah, but Brett, they got kind of sick of the bread. They, they, tried, they wanted other food. Remember that? We want meat. We want meat. And God gave them quail, remember that? And there was quail coming out their nostrils. Remember that story? Kind of the king's table thing. But the bread was called angel's food. The psalmist called the manna that they ate angel's food and bread from heaven. The Bible tells us it had a sweetness like honey, but it was like coriander seed. I don't know, maybe Hawaiian bread. You know, have you had that stuff? Maybe that's what manna was. But they got sick of it. The Bible says the ladies beat it into cakes and pounded it into mortar and baked it and stuff. And, and uh, you know, they made manna nut bread and manicotti. 
I love that so many of you are new here because there's people laughing. You old atheists are like, not the old manna joke again. You know? <laughs> it's like, this is really friend, fun for me, bringing up old, 25 years, you run out of material. Um, but I think we do that. We have the bread of life, but we think, I'm gonna try other food, and we got quail coming out our nostrils. When the bread of life is what you and I have been given by the Lord. He's prepared this table before us in the presence of our enemies. This is the food that the Lord gives to us. You see, point for point, Jehoiachin gets what you and I get. We, we didn't do anything to deserve one good thing, but the King of Kings, Jesus, reaches down and lifts up our head he pulls us up out of prison. And he, he speaks kind words and gracious words and says, I have thoughts toward you that are precious thoughts and not of evil and a future and a hope for you. He robes us in his righteousness. And he feeds us at his banqueting table. Like these six things that we've kind of ex explored, man, to me, as a Christian, it just makes my heart leap with joy what God has done for us. And if you're a Christian, can I challenge you to really think through this and think, Lord, thank you for pulling me up out of prison. I didn't deserve that. I deserved a rotten jail. But you've saved me because you're gracious. And you've blessed me. And I have the future of heaven to be with you for all eternity. Man, we've got so much to rejoice about. And if you're down, if your head is down because of the coronavirus, if your head is down because your job is suffering because of the coronavirus, if your head is down because you're just still miserable because of the election or because of you know, what happened in 2020 or whatever, let the Lord be the one to lift up your head and remind yourself, it's all good. As a Christian, things are good. We have a future and hope with God. Now, if you're not a Christian, I would challenge you and remind you that, man, there's no better way than to let the Lord do what evil Merodach did for Jehoiachin. It's the same thing God wants to do for you. Get out of jail free, man. It's what Jesus did on the, on the cross. He didn't just wink at your sin. He said, I will pay the penalty for your sin. That's what the cross was about. And then he rose from the grave after he was killed, proving he was who he claimed to be. And then all that's required of you to be saved now don't be confused, people get confused on this. I had a message last night, somebody said, shouldn't we still do like good things? If you've wronged a brother, aren't you supposed to be saved? Don't you have to go make it right? The answer is no. You can't add to the salvation Jesus did for you. That's all that he did. Once you're a Christian, yes, you, you should be obedient to God's word, but you're not gonna be totally successful with that. You're gonna still make mistakes and still sin, and so we still, how do you stay saved? The same way you got saved, just by his goodness and his grace. Jehoiachin was able to leave, live in the king's palace, eat the king's food for the rest of his life. Why? Because the king said so. That's it. That's how you get to eat at the king's table. is <clears throat> because the king said so, Jesus. But he's a perfect gentleman. He doesn't force you to eat at his table, to be pulled up out of prison. You have to agree to it first. That's what it means to become a Christian. To say, I'm a sinner who needs to be saved and I believe in Jesus, that he died on the cross for my sins, that he rose up from the grave and you will be saved. Romans 10 verses nine and 10 tells us that clearly. May the Lord give us ears to hear what he'd say to his church in Jesus' name. Would we pray together? Let's pray. Oh Lord, I'm so thankful for so great a salvation. When I read the story of Jehoiachin, I'm reminded, Lord, of truly your glorious truth of how you love us, forgive us, provide the way, the truth, and life for us. Lord, you're just so good. I pray that none of us as Christians would take for granted the glorious salvation of pulling us out of the darkness into his marvelous light, eating the food, robed in righteousness. Lord, help us not take that for granted. But may we rejoice. I pray that as people leave this room and turn off their internet connection, I pray that their, their hearts will be full of joy. No matter how bad it is here and now, we have much to be thankful for, Lord. But for the non-believer, the unsaved person, I pray that you just, by your spirit, just tap them on the shoulder right now. And may they just know in their heart their need to be saved and forgiven. I pray that they wouldn't be stubborn and put it off another day. But I pray that that sense that they feel right now, their need to be saved, would, that they would act on it and, and invite you to come into their life and do all of these things. 
Lord, there's no better way to live on this earth than to be saved by the King of Kings. May they know that and learn that. So thank you for speaking to us, Lord. And the book of Jeremiah, as we wrap it up on Wednesday night, I pray that you'd put these things in our memory that we might be able to commit to the truth of scripture in Jesus' name, amen.